Welcome to What They Never Told Us, the podcast where we explore our own personal journeys in the hopes to give you some insight into your own narrative. I'm your host, Sasha, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm your host, Crystal, licensed social worker. Yes, we are mental health professionals. However, we are not experts on anyone else but ourselves. You are the only expert on you. The information shared or discussed on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the second part of the conversation on race that Crystal and I started last week. So before we continue the discussion, as always, we're going to do a check-in. But I kind of want to, you know, give you a little something to think about before we actually do a check-in. Because as I, I know I said this before in a previous episode, but the check-in is also for you, the audience. This is your time to check in with yourself. Why do I remind you? Um, because I think that the information that you listen to from or outside of the podcast, it's always filtered through like your current emotional state. So when you don't know what it is that's happening within you, like your current emotional, mental, and physical state will inevitably have an effect on how you process your external world. So this is exactly why Crystal and I do the check-ins. It's kind of like our, our first step to filter out what may or may not hinder us in the conversations that we're about to have. So if you need, pause the episode. Or if you don't want to pause and you just want to hear how we're doing, because I know we're that interesting, uh, <laughs> you can even do the check-in afterwards. That's fine, as long as you are checking in with yourself, because I think it's important to start making connections with what you're experiencing and how that can be affecting you in your current moment. So. Uh, that was a mouthful, but Crystal, how are you doing? Yeah, no, thank you for that introduction to the check-in, but also just to the episode, because I think that also is relevant to today's conversation. But uh, today, I will say, I think, well, today I'm just feeling thoughtful, I guess, um, just thinking more so about the ways that I'm showing up in the world in relationship to other people and thinking about old patterns of behaviors and how do you change that and how do you navigate being in relationship with other people in a healthy way. I think I've always functioned in this place that is not healthy, that I don't use the best coping mechanisms and being able to kind of shift into better ways of being in relationship with others, but also kind of trying to figure out what are your boundaries, right? Because I think certain things, you know, like certain behaviors, sometimes it is healthy. It just may be coupled with other unhealthy behaviors and trying to distinguish what is it that you want to keep and what do you not want to keep, just kind of like in that process. So it's just making me very pensive and a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because again you just always realize things about yourself and then you also have to push yourself out of your comfort zone so that's always a little bit of a difficult place to be but always in the service of the self mm. I love that you said that and I know I have to do my check-in but I love that you said that because it, it falls in line with exactly what we're going to be discussing today so let me do my check-in and then we'll start the conversation I I I think my experience of the world is so strange because I, I've come to realize that I don't think that I'm not going to say I'm the only one who does it or there are not enough people like me. I do believe that there are people like me, like obviously we're friends, but <laughs> I am so much in my head in regards to like, how is this affecting me? How are my thoughts affecting how I perceive this situation? So all that to say that I think that sometimes I get tired and right now I am 
crazy tired because that process that I go through of the self and then the external and like what's going on, it, it prevents me from sleeping sometimes. So I am literally on like four hours of sleep and not even consistent four hours of sleep. Like it was just like interrupted sleep and you know just in case anyone else is going through something like that that's exactly how you know that something is bothering you <laughs> if, if it wasn't more obvious but going back to the self and what we're going to be discussing today we are going to be continuing the conversation on racism last week what we did was give you a very brief history of certain events that helped plant the seed for racism in america specifically the point was to set the story up to understand how this systematic hierarchy began and how it has continued to be a part of our everyday lives. It really is a part of the culture that we have grown up in and that we've been socialized in. It's not as in your face, but it's there. And us as participants are exactly that. We are participants, whether we are aware of it or not. And I think it shows up in different ways in different regions of the country. But I have to say that it's always present because of national policies or the media and people that indirectly affect us. It's funny because this is the they we always speak about. It doesn't necessarily have to be people in your personal world and, or like your, in your smaller circle. It, it, it could be what you're consuming within your job or what the TV you watch or the commercials that you take in, right? And it may not necessarily be your belief, but the reality is if you don't look into yourself kind of how we discussed in the check-in, you might be taking on and owning beliefs that have been handed to you. So this is why in today's episode, my co-host Crystal is going to help us explore the self in relation to racism and how we can begin to undo these thoughts and beliefs that we've inadvertently taken on as our own. So with that being said, Crystal and I have decided that in order to have this conversation, we got to be real and honest. And even saying that makes me uncomfortable, but no matter how uncomfortable we feel about what is coming out of our mouths, it takes being uncomfortable and leaning into that quote unquote scary feeling in order to begin to have real conversations around this topic. Real means that yes, we do mess up and we are not perfect and we are not exempt from that just because we're talking about this. So ready to begin, boo? Yes, let's jump on in. So as uh, Sasha had mentioned, Last week, we talked about our history in this country, and really what it did was it created a white supremacist society, right? Like, all of these ideas and beliefs created white superiority, white supremacy, and and white supremacy is really just a racist ideology based on the belief that white people are superior to folks of other races, right? Or they should be dominant to people of other races, right? Um, and, I, and like Sasha said, when we talk about the they, it could be anything, anyone, any policy. Then you don't necessarily need to be white to be affected by white supremacy because it rules everything around us. With that being said, today we wanted to speak more to internalized racism, which is the personal conscious or subconscious acceptance of the dominant society's racist views, stereotypes, and biases of one's ethnic group. And and just like to give some examples of what internalized racism can look like. This is not a complete list, but you know, sometimes you might be in a retail store and you see a person of color and automatically assume that they're the employee because they would be working a minimum wage type of job or a service mm. job. Or when when you hear stories in the news like where cops don't believe black people or people of color live in affluent predominantly white neighborhoods like how could this person 
possibly even afford to live here, right, in this community. Or sometimes even more profound, like I can speak to the Latinx community, uh, we hear things like mejorando la raza, which is um, bettering the race, or purificando la sangre, which means purifying the blood, which alludes to, you know, marrying, procreating, building a family with someone who is white in order for your generation, for generations to come to continue to whiten with this idea that white is better or white is superior. No, I love that you brought that up because like when we say these things, it become it's like our norm, right? But in reality, what it does is it rejects the other, which is black. So you're trying to like run away from it and then it creates this like negative idea about it. So I'm so happy you brought that up. Yes, and don't worry, girl, we're going to get deeper. <laughs> get ready. <laughs> so for today's conversation, I borrowed uh, Sasha's concept a little bit. Uh, I did want to kind of ground our conversation in a book, uh, just because I felt like it would be helpful to give a little bit more structure. Also, you know, we got to amplify Black people, support Black writers, authors, businesses. So today's conversation was inspired by the book, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World, and Become a Good Ancestor by Layla F. Saad. And Layla is an East African, Arab, British, Black, Muslim woman who was born and grew up in the West, and she currently lives in the East. She is a New York Times and Sunday Times bestselling author, anti-racism educator, speaker, and podcast host on the topics of race, identity, leadership, personal transformation, and social change. This book is a 28-day challenge that explains certain concepts, and then you answer some journaling prompts, right? So it's not like a book that you just read. She's about the work. This book was actually kind of inspired by something that she did. I believe it was for Black History Month back in 2018. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was. And it was just Instagram posts. So she was challenging her followers to kind of think about these concepts and ask themselves these questions. And of course, it was so popular. It got so big that she came up with the book so that people can continue to do this just on their own time. So the book is set so that you can either work alone or work in a group. If you do work in a group, she was kind enough to add like a group processing piece to to the book so that you you know how to kind of work in relationship to other people while processing these things. So for this episode, we're going to review some terms or some of the bigger ideas that she discusses in the book. And then we're going to ask questions based on those chapters because each day is a different chapter. Um, so I will say this is not an extensive list of questions, nor is this an extensive review of everything that she covers in the book right because first of all buy the book like I said support black business support a black author <laughs> um I had to buy it so so should you spend your coins it's trust me it's well worth it but two we're just not gonna cover 28 days in one recording of a podcast like bye this, that's, that's not what we're gonna do here but to stay but to stay true to the nature of our podcast Sasha and I not only will be like discussing the concepts we're gonna answer some of those questions that we're gonna ask you right so we're gonna challenge you to think on it um and we're gonna you know lead by example so I, I also want to be true to Layla who wrote this book that a lot of the questions for the most part are 
from her book. Um, but some of the questions are my own remix or kind of like what came up for me. If you need to give anyone credit, give it to Layla. Don't give it to me. But I just wanted to put it out there that some of the questions are based off her book. And some of them are just kind of like what I thought of when I read when I heard the book, because I didn't actually read it. It was an audible. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, well, <laughs> I cheated a little bit. But but I will say, if you do the audible, her voice is so soothing. It was like the most beautiful experience. I was like, this is tough stuff, but like, at least it sounds beautiful in my head. Like that, like it was like if we're gonna if we're gonna do challenging things, at least I can enjoy hearing her voice. So I will say that. So we're gonna start off with privilege. Why? Because I think that even just based off the concept of how we started this podcast. You kind of just need to explore who you are, where does your power lie, how do you show up in this world, and privilege is a big, big piece of that. So privilege is just a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to people of that particular group. So like, in this case, we're going to talk about white privilege, which is basically what I just said about privilege, but it's offered to white people. But there's other forms of privilege, like if you are a man, right? Like you have privileges. If you are educated, you have privileges. If you are part of a the dominant religious group, you have privileges, right? Um, so things like that. But with that said, I do want to ask not just my co-host, but all of you, what are the ways that you are privileged based on your identity? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> So it, the real starts right away. Yeah, huh? yeah. Uh, we're we not playing no games. <laughs> so just FYI, if you weren't listening, I am half Greek. I have a Greek last name um, that I still own. And even though I look Hispanic on paper, I know I don't necessarily seem it. Like, let's say, like, if you get, like, my name, if you see my name in a resume or if I'm inquiring into something, like, I'm pretty sure that people don't necessarily have this idea of, like, oh, she's Hispanic. When, you know, as compared to having like a last, like Lopez or like my mom's last name, Cortez. I think that that's like the, I'm just hitting on the surface level. I'm not even, and then the fact that I'm white passing, when I do my hair straight, I could definitely pass probably for white. But it, that's a strange one though, because that's more within the, my Latinx community. Because I feel like when I'm in other groups, like actual white groups, uh, I it's very obvious to them that I'm not white. So that's just weird. But that's just the beginning of it. What about you? Oh, yeah, well, I was going to say, I think also being white passing within Latinx culture is a privilege in and of itself. When you think about the yes, actually the yes. cultural context um, of, because there's also a lot of racism within the Latinx community, which we talked about very, very briefly. Um, but for me, I would say uh, my skin color is definitely a privilege. I think when I think about privileges, they're they're given to people based off of very superficial things. So I think like my skin color is one of the things first things you will notice uh, when you see me. And I'm not white passing per se, um, but I but my proximity to whiteness is pretty high. Like I'm a very light skinned person. Like even though I'm not technically white passing I mean that doesn't necessarily mean I don't face discrimination but I'm more likely to probably receive the benefit of the doubt or likely to be perceived as a non-threat in situations where someone is of a darker complexion than me 
or in situations of law involving like authority figures or the law, right? I definitely have been like followed in stores, but it only happens really when I'm in a in an area where I'm the odd one out. Like if I'm in a predominantly white space, then yeah, like I'm going to be followed. But if I'm in my neighborhood, people are not going to follow me because they don't perceive me as a threat because I kind of like blend in a little bit more. Or I will say when I was dating someone who is Black, I remember we would get followed in stores and um, we would get pulled over like when we were, well, when he was driving, I was not driving. Uh, But, you know, just thinking like this happens to you all the time because like I was like, oh my God, this is so annoying. Like, I can't believe this person's going to thinking that we're going to steal. Like, why are they following us? And he's like, yo, shorty, relax. Because... (laughs) This, this happens, like, this is the reality. And, like, you know, like, even just my, you know, like, him being, like, relax, like, stop, don't make a, make a scene. My ability to make a scene or my, the fact that I can, I feel okay in making a scene and he doesn't because he's, like, yo, like, relaxed mm. is privilege, right? Like, you know. Yeah. So, and, and these are, again, like, small examples. We have a few things to get through so we may not go into depth for every single thing I definitely acknowledge that I have privilege in many many ways but I think just those were the examples for me that related most to this conversation Uh, the second question I have on privilege before we move on is how have you become apathetic to racism and why was that an option that was afforded to you if you have become apathetic to racism? And I think that this is an important question to ask because some people don't have that option. Some people don't have that choice. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about like, what do people see, physically see when they see you? Or like, what are the first things that come to people's mind when your resume comes across their desk? Or, you know, when you're walking into an interview for the first time, like just also thinking about that, because I think privilege is what helps us become apathetic to many things but specifically racism and and thinking about why you're apathetic to it can speak a little bit more to deeper layers of your privilege yeah that's so real so before I answer the question I think that it's very easy to fall into a state where your norm seems to be everybody else's normal and I think that that's how we create apathy just because I have a norm that you know you may not have it doesn't necessarily mean that that is um everyone's lived experience exactly sorry i couldn't get the words out of my mouth you're right that's not reality overall as a as a collective right that's your reality that is your unique experience which is why you need to look into what it what you have privilege in right so i can admit that i have become apathetic to racism especially pre-pandemic i noticed it because a i don't have to deal with it I don't, you know, I think I dealt with it more earlier on in my life where I was more in service roles, like when I was bartending or when I was a waitress. It's easy to assume that I am Latina. And um, I remember like women touching my hair to see how it felt because it's curly. And I just remember feeling so disrespected. As I moved up in life in regards to my career, there was so much more distance created because I wasn't put in situations where people were going to do that anymore. So. For me, like, I don't even think at this point, unless I walk into a store on Fifth Avenue, that I'm going to be given a face or I'm going to be followed or I'm going to be just kind of like looked down upon because, oh, they know that I can't buy certain things from that store. Like, and, and, and it's so silly because it's like we're talking about class, but class and race are interconnected. 
And it's something that we have to be aware of. So it's like, and I don't even put myself in positions like that anymore. So I think that it became real easy for me before the pandemic to just kind of, yeah, it's there and I'm trying to do what I can, but not think about it. And I think it has to do with the fact that I put myself in a field where people are educated and they're not going to do, there's not going to be this overt, like in your face kind of, uh, demonstration of racism and I'm you know I am white and I am educated and that gives me a lot of privilege thank you for for sharing that because I think um it helps people to to see it especially if you're white passing or have proximity to whiteness because a lot of what you said like people you know like you only had people were only trying to touch your hair like when you were in the service industry but I'm sure that people in corporate America like black women or black men people are probably still trying to touch their hair or you know something like that so I think that also even like speaks to your privilege that at some point you can you know escape that um and then there's also people who can't um so I think that that was a great example when we're even like thinking about white privilege or whiteness I do want to let y'all know in case you didn't already that race is a social construct. And what does that mean? What is a social construct? The social construct means that people made it up. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's not real. We made it up. Constructed socially. Um, it's, race is not a biological fact. So Harold P. Friedman, biologist um, who studies race and biology, tried to determine what percentage of your genes reflect race and he determined that it is 0.01%, a very minimal, minimal, minimal make like reflection or makeup of your genetic material. So a lot of the differences that we see, because we do see physical differences, right, are like various genotypes and phenotype expressions of one race, the human race. So race is made up, but it's so pervasive that it influences everything and everyone. And Sasha did a great job last week of kind of like explaining how we got here, right? Here are some reflection questions. Um, Now that you know that race is a social construct, if you didn't already, if you have proximity to whiteness and have not questioned it, ask yourself, what do you think about Black people? What do you think about people Mm. who are, do have a darker complexion of skin? Ask yourself what, what you would think feel and how would you react if you were associated with blackness what ways have you consciously or subconsciously believed that whiteness is better and I do have a story with that um, because of how I grew up but I'm gonna just get to the last uh, question and then we'll come back and answer Uh, when was the first time you noticed race heard someone speak about race or notice that you were discriminatory towards another because of race. How did you develop that reaction? And how did it make you feel? Did you feel justified? Did you feel fear? Did you feel confusion? I'll, I guess I'll start since I'm already talking. <laughs> um, but what ways have I um, consciously or subconsciously believed that whiteness is better? I think um, when I was like, what this made me think of is when I was growing up, I wanted to move to a white neighborhood. And I think I spoke about it in one of our episodes about like wanting to move to Bay Ridge because 
I it meant status and meant wealth, right? And I think that like when reflecting a little bit more on that, um, just kind of like peeling back those layers, I wanted to aspire to the ideals of whiteness. So like I wanted the white picket fence, the house, the two kids, the nuclear family. I didn't really want a dog, but I was like, everybody else has a dog. So I guess I'm gonna have a dog too. Uh, (laughs) uh, The idea of like the suburbs or just like living in rich, like white urban areas because it was nicer. They had access to things like this meant that you were someone that you had made it and not even just financially, but like it also felt like there was a there was a piece of status um, that I was also trying to aspire to right and then I was associating that with whiteness right because I wasn't thinking about black people as someone to like as a group to aspire to right like I was thinking about this in relationship Mm -hmm. to white people so I I do feel like when you want to aspire to whiteness you reject your own culture whether it's conscious or not because I think like wanting to aspire to to whiteness or to these people that live in this affluent neighborhood it meant like I was rejecting the fact that I lived in a multi-generational home, right? Because for the most part, what we see is that people don't do that. I was in, uh, aspiring towards individualism, which is a result of capitalism. And capitalism in this country was built on the backs of slaves, right? And it was part of the white supremacist, white dominant culture. And and like those things are just not in line with, like not culturally in line with being Latinx, Right. Um, and there, I think there's nothing wrong with building wealth. I don't, I don't want to kind of like conflate the two, but I wanted to do it the way that white people did it. And that was because that was all that I saw in white dominant culture. Like that's what I saw on TV. That's what I saw when I was on the train. That's what I saw when I crossed a certain street, you know, like in my neighborhood over to the next neighborhood. So that was what I saw. So that was what I aspired to. I don't think it was conscious at the time, but now I'm like, oh shit, that was me aspiring to whiteness. For me, I now that I, I'm thinking about I've been thinking about these things, um, I don't think it's necessarily that we want it to be white, right? I think that early on, like even if you can't verbalize it, we as human beings we're we're observing, we're taking in information. And what happens is is you observe inevitably, because you look at people on the TV, you look at people around, you look at people who have better things, and you look at how people react to these better things. And when you're always looking at who has these better things, it is white people. So what you're reacting to is, and what you're aspiring to be is the the person who has access to these Mm. things that have status, right? It's not necessarily, oh, I want to be white, right? Because I, when I, when I hear people say that, like, I get where they're coming from, but it almost feels as though, yeah, and some people will reject their culture, but it does feel like a, a rejection of the self and where you come from. And like, I really want to hold on to where I come from because I love where I come from. But I also want access to these things. So white kind of became this uh, symbolic term for the group who has access. Right. I do agree with that 100%. And I'm glad that you brought up that clarification. I will also say that my sister, who's four years younger than me, she's black. And I was like, I definitely don't want to be black. So I will say that, there, like, I agree with you. And I think that there was also subconsciously because I was like, you know, everyone, everyone always commented on her blackness. And I was like, I don't want people commenting on my black. Like, you know, like if, if like if I was um, in her, her position. But I do absolutely agree that sometimes this idea of wanting to be white or aspiring to whiteness is also um, kind of conflated with with. Um, 
just like white dominant culture and just having things. So I, I do appreciate that you brought that up. And I, I think it's important to note the differences between who has access and who doesn't and how we internalize those things. Cause that is exactly what culturally we're talking about here that we we all pick up on, right. As participants, like I said earlier, but there is this one question that I want to answer. It's when was the first time you noticed race, heard someone speak about race or noticed that you were discriminatory towards another person because of race. So I grew up in, in like many people my age in a, and like, I, I don't know, maybe I lived in a, a nice little, I grew I had, a, I was in a magnet school, so maybe it was more cushy than other public schools. I, I can't tell you. And that's privilege at its best. I remember thinking that the idea of race is gone, that you can't discriminate against other people. And I grew up very vocal about these things. And I remember, you know, my mom's Colombian and she comes from a third world country. And these constructs are also part of her upbringing. And I remember when she would say things that were racist, I would fight back with her growing up. And I thought I had it. I was like, I know I'm not racist. I know I'm not. But, and this is why it's hard and uncomfortable, but I, I do feel it's necessary to talk about these things because when I was um, in college, I had a crush on this guy, huge time crush. And I remember we were in the same math class and I loved sitting next to him and he just gave me butterflies and everything. And I assumed in my very naive 19 year old in, in my brain that he was Puerto Rican. So because he looked Puerto Rican and I never asked him. And then I remember the day that I did ask him like, oh, where are you from? He told me he was black and Polish. And that changed something in me. And I felt this shift inside my, even I remember feeling it physically. It's, and I immediately rejected it. I immediately, I was like pining over this guy. And then out of nowhere, I found out he was black and Polish and something inside me shifted and not in a good way. And I kept spinning, like my head was spinning afterwards. Like, why did I do this? I know I'm not racist. Why did I do this? Why did I do this? And lo and behold, I have internalized racism. <laughs> and I think it was at that very specific moment that it hit me like, oh shit, I, I have so much more work to do because my value as a human being to be equal and like give everybody a shot was not showing up. So, and like, I recognize that there was something about him telling me that he was black that turned me off. And three days later, I was like, Sasha, don't be stupid. He's definitely someone you like. And that was it. And I got over it. But it was in that moment that I, that's when it hit me. Like I recognized like, wow, these things are so embedded in us. Yeah, no, I, I felt that that's very real. Also, thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that because I think like that's exactly why we're like even doing this episode because I think like this work doesn't stop. Like even though you were someone who was defending uh, black people and kind of like standing up to your mom and these ideas, then you were like switch, like turned off when you found out that um this particular uh guy was black. And I think that, those are the layers that we're hoping that you'll begin to kind of like uncover and peel back and that and it's lifelong work right like you can think that you're like all right like I did the work the second that you think you're done you're not like that means that you're not really about the work because it's never done and there's always new things to discover moving on to the next I guess 
topic um, within this conversation is the idea of prejudice versus racism. What is prejudice? The prejudice is a prejudgment or unjustifiable and usually negative attitude of one type of individual or groups towards another group and its members. You know, these negative attitudes are usually generalizations or stereotypes that deny the right of individual members of that particular group um, to be recognized or treated fairly. And I, I wanted to point this out because there is a difference between racism and prejudice. So racism, in layman's terms, is race prejudice plus social and institutional power, right? So racism is different from racial prejudice racial hatred or racial discrimination because racism involves one group having the power to carry out systemic discrimination through institutional policies, practices, through the shaping of society and cultural beliefs and values that support that this particular group is better than the other. And in this country, in America, the only group that can be racist is anyone who identifies as white. Why? Because they're the only ones that hold power in this country to shape our institutions, our laws, and things like that, right? Like greater things that will affect specifically people of color and in this conversation, Black people. Because I do want to focus on anti-Black racism because yes, like people of color experience racism. I'm not trying to deny that in any way. But people of color have their own history with this country and have experienced discrimination, but it's not the same deep-rooted history that Black people face in this country, right? Because of slavery, because of the deep-rooted anti-Blackness that we learned about last week, of how that, like, even before this country was established, those ideas were already seeping in. Anti-Black racism is inherently different from the racism that other people of color face. With that said, here are some reflection questions to think about. So what are the stereotypes that you have heard about Black people? And who told you these stereotypes? How have you treated darker-skinned Black people versus lighter-skinned Black people with the understanding that Black people or brown people can identify as all types of races? How do you feel around Black people who are confident boundaried and outspoken about their beliefs and values and how have you thought that black people are lesser than you not as intelligent not as qualified or not as insert whatever other belief you have here just based on their race it's so funny because I felt like this was very difficult and I'm sure for me to reflect on and I'm sure it it really isn't and I think that I'm trying to protect the idea that I am like an anti-racist and not that that's not something that I'm aspiring to but I think like this was one of those things that made it very difficult for me to be honest with myself because I was like shit like this definitely does not align with who I want to be um so it was this was a difficult like subset like when thinking about this this particular episode to answer but I will say that I think the way that my maybe like it shows up or this is kind of I guess like where my mind allowed me to go I may need to continue to do more work and exploration in regards to this but it was more so like I feel like I overcompensate sometimes for darker skinned black people because I know that they face discrimination at even greater like levels I think that I go out of my way to be more vocal 
in some sort of way in 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 their like in their defense or or just kind of like to amplify whatever like they're promoting or whatever they're doing i feel like the story i just i just want to say because crystal is so vulnerable i feel like the story i told literally like a couple of minutes ago fits in all of these questions right like what are the stereotypes that i've heard about black people um how have i treated darker skin i, I literally stopped liking somebody for three days like <laughs> um and how have i thought black people are lesser than me I'm, I'm sure that was at play i've been told all my life that don't do this don't date this don't th- like don't date a black guy don't bring a black guy home and then the minute i find out he's a black guy he's mixed I'm like, uh-uh, I can't because it's already ingrained in me that, yeah, there's there's parts of the way I think about and perceive Black people that already sets them up to be lesser than me. Um, so I, I am guilty of all of these questions. And I'm sure much more than just that one situation that I discussed. The next, I guess, subtopic is white silence. So white silence is when white people are silent about issues of race and white supremacy. Silence is complicity. It's a form of self-protection and it protects white supremacy. So I would argue that all forms of silence against racism uphold white supremacy. Um, It's especially harmful when white people do it because their silence will result in no change for them, right? Like, so they can be quiet, and they're going to, they're chilling. They're good. Nothing is going to happen because they're going to continue to gain from their white privilege. But their silence is going to continue to uphold oppression towards BIPOC. BIPOC meaning Black and Indigenous people of color. Whereas BIPOC, if they're silent, it will just continue to lead to their further oppression, right? So I think silence is, period, in and of itself, it is very harmful. White silence in particular is especially harmful because it is definitely a form of complicity that will benefit them as opposed to when BIPOC or just people of color are silent, it will continue to support their oppression. But just some questions, whether you're white or you're uh, BIPOC, how have you stayed silent about racism? Which situations elicit the most white silence from you? If you're a BIPOC, do you tend to stay silent most when that silence works in your favor? How has silence been complicit in upholding racist behavior? What do you fear you will lose when you use your power and voice to speak up against racism? How has being silent about racism given you a sense of comfort or ease? Have you thought about who you are harming when you are silent? Mm. (laughs) So I can't, yeah, I can't speak for... Like, I won't answer all those all those questions in line, but I think that what comes up for me, especially when you think about complicity and what what your non-actions do, right? Like, I mean, essentially that's neglect. And how does a person feel when they're neglected, right? When someone's not acknowledging their pain, their hurt, it, it doesn't feel good because then you sit there wondering like, well, no one sees it? Like, is there something wrong with me? Uh, I think that that's something that could happen as a result of not being, of not saying anything. But for me, what keeps coming up is my job. Mm. When it comes to my family and my friends, I am, I am all for talking about these things and pushing forward and pushing people and being like, yo, that didn't come out right. And yo, you shouldn't say that. And this is why. And I will sit there and I will try. But then when it comes to my job and my money and my sense of security, the whole game changes. And it also has to do with the kind of society we live in because everything has to be politically correct. Mm -hmm. 
And that is something that I don't think I'm well-versed in political correctness. Um, (laughs) I think that it's a skill that you have to learn in order to begin defending these things. So essentially you just have to keep learning more. And then it just gets to a point where it's like, wow, like I, it's it's a lot of pressure. And then you feel the pressure of, I don't want to lose my sense of security. And at least for me, I know the times that I have been silent, it lingers within me and it stays. And it, it I don't want to say that it hurts because I don't want to undermine anyone else's hurt because I'm sure it hurts more to be neglected. But it's like, why, why, like, how do I, and you know, I have the privilege of being able to get over it in three, in two, three days, right? right? Other people don't. So the, it's complicated and that's all I know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny because I, I had something similar just to, very briefly go back to the question which situations elicit the most silence so silence is something that I struggle with a lot um whether we're talking about race or even just my own feelings like I'm like oop, like not gonna tell people how I feel right I think that when I heard the piece about like what do you fear you will lose for me I came back to what you were saying Sasha and it's just, it just came down to this need to survive Right. Because we're all we're all working against these systems. And I'm speaking from the perspective of a BIPOC, not not, obviously not from the perspective of a white person, because that's different. But I've achieved this level of success, but not really, because technically I'm still working within these systems that are meant to oppress me and not favor folks who look like me. And I am still devalued overall. But with this success, I'm better than where I started, right? Like, I'm better than where my family was. So I think, like, the fear of losing the little that I have, but I've had to work so incredibly hard for, is where that fear comes from. Like, I live alone. I'm comfortable. And I feel like if I stand up to racism and I lose my job, like, I'm starting back at zero. And it's like, I can't afford to go back to zero. And there's also just fear of like ruining my reputation, losing the ability to gain work somewhere else. Um, And I'm sure that for folks who have a family, like it's not just about you anymore, right? Like you have kids, like you have a partner or people to take care of that are depending on you financially. So I feel like the system was created to keep us in those very same situations, right? These structures were created you know, like that keep us down, that make us work two, three, four times as hard as anyone else to achieve success. And the fact that that's so brittle and weak and so susceptible to being taken away from you, like easily just like the rug could be easily pulled out from under you. I think that that was intentional when these systems were created. So it, the system itself continues to fuel our silence. And I think like the only way to really get out of that is if we all decide to speak up because for every time that someone stays silent like we're continuing to support and uphold this system of white supremacy where all of us will lose right so like it's kind of like getting away from that individualistic perspective to working towards the community perspective but I I understand that it's also really hard for me I'm I'm one person but if I had kids I feel like I would feel this tenfold you know like I'd be like oh my god like my baby are they gonna eat 100% 100% correct. Like that, I don't even know what else to say. Like that was, um, you are, no, like you're right. You're right. Um, and that's it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and I think this kind of leads very much so into the next piece, which is allyship. Allyship is the active, consistent, and challenging practice of unlearning and reevaluating in which a person of privilege seeks to work in solidarity with the marginalized group. 
So allyship is not an identity. You can't be like, all right, I'm Latina. I'm a New Yorker. I'm an ally. Like, this shit is not an identity. <laughs> just just making it very clear. It's a lifelong process um, where you build relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals or groups. It is not self-defined. So you can't be like, I'm an ally now. It is given to you by the people who you seek to ally yourself with. I also want to say that, like, just because you support social justice issues, because you've read books, because you've listened to podcasts like this one, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're an ally. So I'm, I'm going to put it out there. Like, I don't even think someone would consider being an ally because I don't think that I've done enough work yet to start undermining these systems of white supremacy in favor of Black people and other marginalized groups. So when thinking about allyship, you need to ask yourself these questions. Do you stand up to racism even when you feel scared, which ties back to the silence piece? How do you act? How do you react during those conversations about race? Do you fight, freeze, or flee? Are you emotionally prepared to deal with the fear and shame of being called out, meaning being publicly called out or called in, which is more so when someone individually like says, hey, can we have a one-on-one conversation by Black people? How do you react when you're called in or you're called out? Do you center yourself in your positive intentions? How do you handle genuinely apologizing and making amends? Where are the areas that you have started to do the work and where are the areas that you have held back? Are there people that you feel more comfortable speaking up against than other groups? Why is that? Identify those groups that you feel more comfortable speaking up against. Uh, And how do you allow perfectionism to get in the way of having difficult conversations with people in your life? Which I think you kind of had alluded to the last two questions Um, When you said that you feel very comfortable speaking up to your friends or family, but sometimes at work, because if you're not PC, because if you don't say it perfectly, then you, you know, you fear um, speaking up. I really, really love these questions. And I think that once you start breaking them down and you and I really hope that people actually do them. What comes up for me, the theme is that all these questions are forcing you to deal with your own emotions. And I think that this is the work that has to be done before you we can try and do work for and be allies for other people, with other people. How do I deal with my, my feelings of being scared, my feelings of not showing up correctly, of feeling guilty or shame? That all has to start with me and my unique personality. And I think that this is probably the best place to start. So for me now at this point in time in my life, I'm going to answer the first one. Um, are you emotionally prepared to deal with the fear, shame of being called out or in? By black people, yeah, I've done the work with myself to say, shit, Sasha, you are not perfect and you are just going to keep messing up and that is okay. And you're going to mess up for other people. But as long as we are able to have that, you know, like there's this interesting distinction between are you having a debate, a discussion or a dialogue? I think that when you are ready to have a dialogue with somebody, you're ready to hear them out and get over whatever the conflict is at that current moment. Like if you're still, you know, check yourself if you're still in debate mode where you want to be right because you can't handle the feelings that are coming up within you. Or if you're just having a discussion just to hear it, but you're not willing to be open, that also is telling of your personal feelings and what's coming up for you. So 
me right now, yes, I am ready to be called in or out with and deal with the fear and the shame and everything else that comes along with not being perfect. I would agree. I think I am ready for that. Definitely terrifying. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I will say for me, I'm even calling myself out in this episode in terms of like, I, you know, like I support social justice issues and like have done the trainings and stuff like that. But I, I still have a lot of work to do because I think for me, the biggest piece is do I stand up to racism? Do I believe the actual history of our country that doesn't center whiteness or white dominance or tries to trick me into thinking that racism is over? Like, no, I don't believe those things. But I think like when it comes to speaking up, even with my family and friends, I have a hard time. Like, I remember there's someone that I stopped talking to because he made a racist comment, but I never said why I stopped talking to him yeah, I don't want to associate myself with this person, but how did I miss an opportunity to educate someone and, and kind of really stand up to people? Because me, me not talking to him about it didn't do anything for Black people. It just made me feel comfortable because I'm like, okay, like I don't want to be associated with this person or I don't want to deal with this. And, and that made me feel comfortable, but it didn't change anything. And I might not even have been able to change his mind, but I at least tried, you know, and I think that there's something to be said about that. I also think something else that came up to me, because I really love what you said about dialogue, discussion, and debate, is this thing of like, is this notion of intentionality versus impact? And I think that a lot of times your intentions in your mind, and maybe even in your heart, like for real, for real, we're good. And I've definitely been in situations like that where I was like, I did not mean to cause mm. harm. But you have to understand that there is a difference between what you intended and how it landed and how it impacted whoever it is that you're affecting. Mm -hmm. And I think that we get so caught up in like, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to. And then we try to diminish how it affected someone else. Like, let's say, for example... I'm playing baseball. I guess I'm, you know, just sliding right into the Dominican stereotypes. Not that I can play, but, uh, <laughs> um, but let's say I'm the person who's throwing the ball, right? I throw the ball to the person who is swinging the bat, right? But instead of like, you know, throwing the ball in a way where they could, they could swing, right? Like I bop them in the head. Did I mean to bop this person in the head? Hell no. But when I said sorry, I didn't mean to. The pain, that throbbing like pain in that person's head did not diminish because I said sorry, I didn't mean to. That shit still hurts. Like they just got bopped in the head. And I, I say that to kind of like bring an example of what like intentionality versus impact. Did I mean to do it? No. Am I sorry? Absolutely. Did it hurt that person any less? No. And I think that we, we need to keep that separate. Yes, what you're talking about is having an experience where you did not mean to do something. But in turn, what you do is in, in when you use these emotions of like, oh, that wasn't my intention, that wasn't my intention, you're validating yourself and then therefore not meaning to, but then you invalidate someone else's experience of their pain. So I think the goal is to always try and that's why dialogue is like the goal how do you validate yourself and how do you validate someone else's experiences so that they don't feel neglected so that they don't feel like okay i'm not being seen because that as a human being that is the worst thing you can feel unseen mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. let's not start a conversation on trauma because uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot to that the last thing that we want to talk about 
And this is where Leela ends her book is on values. So really reflecting on what are your values and do they contradict themselves when you think about your behaviors or your actions or your lack of actions when it comes to thinking about race? Are you truly living up to your values? Do you say that you're someone who values fairness and equity for all, and then your actions contradict that completely, right? So making sure that who you are and what your values are is something that's exercised at all points. So always questioning if you're living, living up to your values and not taking that for granted, but also thinking about what new core values do you feel you need to integrate in order to fully be an anti-racist. Just asking yourself, the values that you have, are they not enough to really be someone who's about doing the work? I just want to add that you can have values, and and it goes back to the intentionality piece, right? You can have the intention of having good values. But I think that this is something that speaks to just the human experience and living in this current world. I don't think that we get told enough that it's okay to step out of that sometimes. Not, and obviously I think that what I'm referring to is stepping out of it, not on purpose, right? Like if you're doing that shit on purpose then you need to think twice about your actions, just saying. But if you didn't mean to hit, let's go back to Crystal's reference. You didn't mean to hit somebody over the head. It's okay. This idea of stepping out of the, not your value of you don't want to hurt other people or impose yourself onto other people well guess what it happened and it didn't happen on purpose but you're gonna have to learn how to sit with that I think that our culture and our capitalistic society have created this bubble where we are not allowed to step outside of what we have said we are which leaves no room for errors which also leaves no no room for these conversations and I think that these conversations need to be had because it, cre- it not only does it val- it begin to validate other people's human experiences for them, but it also be- makes us more human overall because it-, it helps us live within the realm of, okay, I fuck up and okay, uh, how do I move forward and not own that fuck up as like, I am officially a fuck up and that's part of your identity. Exactly. And I think also leaving space for people to shift and grow. Because I think like we live in this, what we call like a cancel culture. And it's like, you fucked up once. That's it. You're done. Like, you know, and, and I I will say like, there are definitely people who are going to say some shit and they absolutely are not changing their mind. That was not a fuck up. That was 1000% their intention. They meant to hurt you. They knew what they were doing. And those people exist. Absolutely. Um, And I think that there are people who are like, you know, like I will say, like, I I feel like I didn't really like get to the to to even really begin to understand race relations in America until college. So think about all of the ways that I was complicit in racism and upholding white supremacist like ideals and like up until that point uh, and like all of the mistakes that I made and. Of course, when I was growing up, we didn't live in cancel culture. But sometimes I, I think back and I was like, oh, girl, that was that was bad. Um, and I wouldn't do that now. But I think like sometimes we don't give people the space to grow. And I think we need to we need to allow for that just to the exact point of what Sasha said earlier about like allowing people to be human. Just the last couple of tips from Layla. She um, she does say that 
some things that help is to have an accountability partner and to create a commitment statement so that you always have something to ground yourself in and always have someone to kind of like help keep you in check. Of course, as we said throughout the episode, remember that this is a lifelong education. You have to do this work consistently. Once you commit to starting, that's it. It's forever. Just like our personal growth is forever, um, anti-racism work is forever. In regards to the accountability piece, this for us, and Crystal continues to be my accountability partner, but this was kind of a display of our accountability. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, and if we're still at this very place, like, (laughs) five years from now, ten years from now, then that would be a huge problem. In wrapping this conversation up, I think we would be remiss to say that listening to this episode is all you need to do. As we just said, doing the work is lifelong. Continue to educate yourself to understand how we got here as a nation and how we got here as individuals. What are the systems that we are up against? Uh, and what is sustaining uh, white supremacy. And trust me when I say it's almost every system, um, unfortunately, that upholds them. And even we uphold them um, unintentionally. So doing the internal work, the personal work is just one piece of the puzzle. This is the individual racism piece. So there's there's a lot more to be done. So we just kind of wanted to give you that that reminder that there are other layers that we didn't touch upon. With that said, that is our episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Never Told Us Pod and let us know what you thought about today's conversation. Please be honest. We can take it. Like we said that we want to be held accountable. We said that we're about this work. So we really mean that. So hit us up on the Instagram or you can email us at nevertoldthispod at gmail.com. And remember to come back next week so we can tell you what they never told us. <laughs>